at 1 Peter 5, we are seeking to rebuild Christendom. But one of the aspects of Christendom, which is very unknown and very much lost, especially among these United States, is the concept and the tradition, the doctrine of Christian nobility. Today in the 1 Peter 5 podcast, we will talk to contributing editor of 1 Peter 5, Theo Howard, about the doctrine of Christian nobility and its relationship to almsgiving. Jesus is King. Welcome to the 1 Peter 5 podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, the editor-in-chief of 1 Peter 5, and I'm joined today by my good friend and contributing editor, Theo Howard. Theo, how are you doing, brother? Salve Maria, Tim. I'm having a blessed Lent so far. Got quite penitential weather here in London, but uh, that seems seems appropriate, so it's really good to be back on 1 Peter 5 podcast. Excellent. Well, I'm really excited for this topic. It's something that's um, something, as I said, the very few of uh, the residents of these United States know much about this because we live in a country which is explicitly so-called egalitarian or I think more more um, appropriately, it should be called anti-hierarchical or anti-nobility um, because egalitarianism is just anti-Christian. Um blunt to put it bluntly um so the the concept of christian nobility is almost uh totally unknown but i think it's very very critical the reason i i brought this up i theo and i were talking because i was i was trying to teach my sons that uh you know if, if you are middle class or so in the united states you you have a a significant amount of wealth and uh, in the United States, we have a concept where if you have wealth, that means that you've you've worked for it and you've earned it. And maybe that's true. Um, it could also be true that you've inherited it. But the point is that people in, in the United States have an idea about wealth where there is not a, a corresponding obligation, the noblesse oblige, the duties of the nobility to serve the common good and serve the poor. So Let's talk about so nobility. Theo, where do you want to start with this topic? Well, um, I think that it was, I was very glad when I received your proposal to, to discuss this topic, because I think it's a very pertinent theme to consider in this time of Lent, where we are accompanying our Lord into the desert. Um, so perhaps we can begin by thinking about nobility um, as a, in, in its metaphysical sense, and I'm going to suggest as a transcendental, and then we can proceed to thinking about nobility in its incarnational sense, you might say, in the in the uh, the, the particular qualities and, and virtues that all Catholics should strive for, and within uh, particular social classes within uh, the the social order. Um, so if we if we um, recall uh, that in this time of of Lent and, and penance, uh, we have um, three great weapons, uh, the three great weapons of the Christian uh, to to call on um, those of fasting, prayer and almsgiving. And those three weapons are, are given us or are, are uh, particularly um, uh, recommended by the church in this time or urged because they correspond to the three great enemies of the Christian, the three great temptations. So we have fasting, which wars against um, the, the temptations of the flesh, prayer, which protects us against the devil, and then almsgiving, which we're going to focus on today, which is the weapon of the Christian against the world. Um, and that's that's what we can we can think about um, as as something that that we can all um, we can all enact. We can all uh, look to at this time. Um, almsgiving is is very much. Um, within Holy Scripture, and I'm just going to touch on that to start with. 
because if we look at the life of our Lord, we can see that um, prayer, of course, is is central to his life. And then um, fasting, of course, um, is is what he does during his 40 days in the desert. We have that wonderful gospel understatement that he fasted for 40 days and, and then he was hungry. Yes. Um, but we might look at the the gospels and we might see that where where is almsgiving in in his in his life of course he um he teaches almsgiving within the the sermon on the mount but is there a point at which he himself actually gives alms and uh, i would um i would assert that that there is um when we recall that when the the magi visited our lord um of the epiphany they presented gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh and of course gold was given as he was the the king he was um, of the royal house of david and he is christ the king and that gold had a had a um a large uh monetary value um and yet when um, the Holy Family in the Gospel of Luke um, journeyed to the temple for Our Lady's purification. If you remember, they they give the the customary um, sacrificial offering uh, when they uh, when they give thanks in the temple. Um, but and do you remember what they what they give? Yeah, the turtle doves. That's right, and the turtle doves, as opposed to the the newborn lamb was the the offering of the poor and so in this in this time period from receiving the tremendous gift of gold from the the magi and then the the temple clearly they've um that that gift of gold um has been given in arms and so um as everything in the christian life we have this tremendous example um from from our Lord and from the Holy Family, and it's it's important to recall that our Lord was born our, that that God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, chose to be born poor, but he also chose to be born noble. He was born of the royal house of David, and so the devotion um, is expressed in in uh, the the giving of alms here. So. Let's think then about about nobility and the fact that all Catholics are called to be noble in the the moral sense of the word. So charity is the law of life, the law of our Christian life. And it's when we we take up our cross that we most perfectly live a life of charity. Um, so I'd like to just refer to a sermon from St. Charles Borromeo um, where he touches on this, this um, call to nobility for all Christians. He says, quote, how great is the nobility of Mary whose filiation traces from kings, patriarchs, prophets and priests of the tribe of Judah to the seed of Abraham and to the royal stirp of David. Moreover, although we are not ignorant of the fact that true nobility, the Christian nobility, is that which the only begotten of the Father conferred on us all when, quote, as many as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God, end quote, and that this dignity of nobility is common to all faithful Christians. Nevertheless, we believe that nobility, according to the flesh, ought not in any way be despised or rejected. On the contrary, he would not who who would not acknowledge this very nobility itself as a singular gift and blessing of God and would not also give special thanks for it to God, the giver of all good things, would truly be utterly unworthy of the name noble, inasmuch as through the fault of an ungrateful soul than that which nothing could be more base, he would tarnish the splendour of his own ancestors. Indeed, nobility of the flesh adds much to true radiance of soul and bears no small benefits, uh, end quote. So you can see there the, the um, approach of the church towards 
noble families towards elite families within society was not to um, denigrate the traditions, the family traditions of those elite families, but was to baptize it and was to say to those noble families that those virtues, those um, the, the, the familial devotion, which they rightly honored, was itself lifted up. It should be lifted up into the Christian life. Now, the, Theo, Theo, I have to, I have to tend to some children for two minutes. Why don't you keep on going, and I'll be right back in two minutes. Just a minute. Certainly. So we can speak here um, analogously with regard to nobility, um, but let's let's think about nobility in the metaphysical sense before we continue with this incarnational sense of it. So I'd like to, to um, highlight that nobility is itself a transcendental. We often hear about the three transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty, but there's actually more transcendentals than that in the, the writing of St. Thomas Aquinas. We've got the transcendental of unity. We've also got the transcendental of nobility to give a couple of instances where this is um, this is pronounced in St. Thomas's works. In his discussion of the fourth way, um, Aquinas states, among beings, there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like. So you can see here that he's, he's um, putting nobility He's, he's giving nobility in the same sense that he's presenting the true and the good, that is convertible with being, uh, which is the definition of a transcendental of being. Um, he also says the more simple and the more abstract a thing is, the nobler and higher it is in itself. So what we might derive from these these uh, um these uses of the word nobility in the metaphysical sense by St. Thomas Aquinas is that nobility denotes ontological superiority. That is um, the quality of being higher on the great chain of being. So if we're to consider, for example, a snail and a tiger, um, the snail is a very simple creature but it is it does have a beauty to it think of the spiral of the of the shell for example so it might be more fitting to describe the tiger as the more noble of the beast of the two beasts there um and i think this is the the sense in which saint thomas aquinas uses that word nobility in a metaphysical sense um it is uh the uh the the quality of being um, more conformed um, to um, uh, contingent being, non-contingent being, um, the uh, God himself. And we might think of nobility as an uh, increasing gradation of perfections, as possessing more perfections. St. Thomas Aquinas, he's here very much consonant with the thought of Aristotle, who said that virtue is said to be more noble when ordained to a greater good. And the um, the use in which St. Thomas Aquinas um, speaks particularly about the pursuit of nobility is the pursuit of wisdom, because through wisdom, the person, quote, approaches the likeness of God. And he quotes Psalm 103, um, which states that uh, God made all things in wisdom. And here you can see a resonance with where I begun talking about nobility, which was with the Holy Family, in that Our Lady, she who is the seat of wisdom, is the most noble of all creatures. She has the highest gradation of perfection of, um, of creatures. So this this word nobility this metaphysical word is also used um analogically in a sense as applied to um to human society 
And this goes back to Aristotle, who talked about arete, uh, that is excellence, and um, the aristoi being those that cultivate arete and being the true um, leaders in the polis. Uh, this is something that you, you mentioned to me privately about how really every society has an aristocracy, a nobility, No, every society, no demand. And when I think about the family, um, there's obviously a hierarchy between man and woman, but then there's also a hierarchy between all the children because all the children are different ages, thus different sizes of different powers. So there's just a, a natural hierarchy that God created, as you said, ontologically between the creatures but also straight in the family, which then happens in every single society. Yes, exactly. So, um, so the idea of an egalitarian society is itself um, a myth. You will always have an elite within society. It's whether those elite are visible and aware of their social obligations and are in some sense held accountable to those social obligations or if they are disguised and um, leading a bad example to society. I've mentioned before how celebrity is in a certain sense the diabolical inversion of nobility or, and the saints, whereas the nobility in the ideal sense modelled Christian virtue for the people, the celebrity often, frequently, models vice. Um, for the contemporary masses. Yeah, in, in these United States, if you're a celebrity and you're rich and you're Jeff Bezos or whatever, you're sort of celebrated as, wow, he, he made it. He, he was so great. He made all these riches and now he can do whatever he wants to. And I want to do that too. And that's kind of it. Whereas you compare like the note, no, uh, you know, the, um, his majesty and her, her late majesty of, of England, there is a, a clear obligation, whether or not they fulfill those obligations, but there is a clear social obligation to use riches, if you will, and their nobility to serve the common good. Exactly. And this touches on, again, the, the metaphysical principle that I want to keep emphasizing here, which is that the higher gives to the lower. And... That metaphysical principle is one reason why evolution is metaphysically um, false. Um, and that, um, if I just check my notes here. Yes, if we, if we think about noblesse oblige, we can see that true nobility is service. It is servant leadership. And thus the perfection of it, the motif of true nobility, ultimately is sacrifice. And the, the nobility of Europe, the historic nobility of Europe, the aristocracy, were the baptized pagan elites, the warrior class, the Bella Torres. And their function, their social function was to protect society even to the point of giving their own life. That particular social station was baptized and um, was idealized by the church through the spirituality of chivalry. This is where, and this is why we can, um, the, the popes would speak about the nobility as being, as having a certain priesthood to it. Um, Benedict XV in the 20th century said that there is a priesthood much like the priesthood of the church, that of the nobility. And he's not only referring to the good example set by, um, by in this case, the Roman patriciate to the, the people, but also in the priestly sacrifice um, that the, the knight would make on the battlefield to defend um, Christian society. The, the very highest love is to give one's life for one's friends. And um, the, the, um, the vocation of the Christian knight was to immolate himself uh, for the glorification of the church, for the spreading of the, of the faith, and for the, the common good of the temporal sphere. Um, and so that 
inner logic of sacrifice is very much present within the um, within the action of alms giving, because the giving of alms is a little sacrifice, and it, it should be a little sacrifice. That's why we talk about alms giving being um, that the, the giving of alms should be from the the substance, not just the excess. It should hurt a little bit. This is something that comes up in the the writings of um, St. Francis de Sales, who was from a noble family. In the Philothea, he said that uh, devotion is to be practiced differently by the nobleman, the workman, the servant, the prince, the widow, the young girl, the wife. Even more than this, the practice of devotion has to be adapted to the strength, life situation and duties of each individual. So if the nobleman has great strength, has great position and status and material wealth, then it is commensurate that his obligations are all are all the more. And I want to say something here about relationships and about accessibility, because the church, within her moral teaching, works within an Aristotelian framework. This is really important. The idea that morality arises from relationships, from the fact that man is a social and political animal. And so when our Lord says, love thy neighbor, he doesn't say love mankind um, and express that through donating to global charities. Um, there might well be a place for that, but really we should be thinking about our neighbors and about those that we are in relationship with um, through um, God's providence. And so looking back on the ages of faith, the Lord of the manor was visible to the, the local people and thus he was accountable. In Leon Gautier's chivalry, he said, he writes, quote, the knight must show himself to the people of his area so they will know that he is a recently invested knight, obliged to defend, defend and maintain the elevated honour of chivalry. Doing so, the chevalier will know how to restrain himself from carrying out any evil action, realising the great shame that such would be inflicted on him by those who serve chivalry. The, the nobleman, the Christian nobleman, would be on his high horse riding around his domain and 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 thus would be accountable and we can contrast this with today where so often the rich seek to disguise their wealth and people might have a false impression that silicon valley millionaires going around in shabby clothing is is a very humble act um on the contrary, it's not because by refusing to to symbolize and to express their social station, they are not held accountable for the great wealth that they have and which should be at the service of the community. Whereas if you think of the the nobleman riding on his horse around his domain, if a, um, a woman is suddenly widowed, um, or if um, children are suddenly made orphaned, or if a man is out of work, he knows where the Lord of the Manor is. He sees that manor on the hilltop, and he will um, he he will feel um, that he is able to go to his gates and to beg for alms. Um, whereas now, with the today's rich, with their um, their secure compounds and and um, armed security guards, that's just impossible. And as it turns out, this is we're recording this on Thursday in the second week of Lent, which is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. When Lazarus is actually doing that very thing, he's begging at the or he's he's there in need right before the rich man. Yep. Yeah, I'm very glad you, you mentioned that gospel passage because I'd like to return to that um, that very story as well. Um, when we think about arms, Obviously, we have our Lord's teaching that 
um, you know, the left hand should not know what the right hand does, and the arms giving should be very discreet. But the the arms asking can be very public, and that's what I'm referring to here. That actually that visibility and that accessibility of wealth should itself um, mean that the poor and the downtrodden know exactly how and who to ask for um, when in um, in need. So um, I will just touch on a few examples now of almsgiving within um, the Christian social order um, and some historic examples. Um, so uh, for one example, um, King uh, uh, St. Wenceslas, Duke of Bohemia, patron saint of Bohemia, very famously, for, as the Christmas Carol said, uh, good King Wenceslaus, he's escaping from his um, from his palace at night. Um, he would rise in the middle of the night from his, his noble bed and he would circulate round the the chart the um, the churches in Prague and give alms generously to widows, orphans, those in prison and those afflicted um, by every difficulty. And his chronicler, Cosmos of Prague, said, so that he was considered not a prince, but the father of all the wretched. And this is what the, um, the sanctification of the, the nobleman really is. It's the paternal relationship of the, um, the nobleman to the people. We have the famous story of, of King St. Edward the Confessor the only king of England to be canonized, on whose throne the, the, new, the new monarch, King Charles III, will be crowned in a few months' time. And the story goes that St Edward the Confessor was walking near Westminster Abbey and met an old beggar who was, who was asking for alms, and he had no money on him because he would customarily give much um, uh, anyway. And so all he had was a, a large and valuable ring with a large with a sapphire on it, which he took off and he gave to the to the beggar. And the the beggar was later met in the Holy Land by some English pilgrims who spoke to the beggar and was revealed to be none other than St. John the Evangelist. And he gave them back the ring and said that um, and asked for them to return it to King Edward, who would later join him. And they returned to England. But by that time, King Edward had died um, and had joined the evangelist in the celestial city. Um, that the uh, Wilton Diptych, the famous, uh, beautiful piece of English medieval art that we have depicts uh, King St. Edward the Confessor with, with that ring. And then at the very apex of Christendom in the 13th century, we have the coming of the mendicant orders, which really transmitted and diffused a spirit of, of poverty throughout Europe and throughout the royal houses and the noble houses. The Dominicans were the the chaplains of nearly became the chaplains of nearly all the royal houses of Europe. And we had this wonderful period where we had a saint on the throne of France, King Saint Louis the Ninth, um, a saint on the um, uh, throne of Aragon, um, uh, King Saint Ferdinand, and um, the pious. Uh, King of England, King Henry III, who had his faults, but um, nevertheless was um, a very devoted uh, Christian prince. And um, these three kings would um, be aware of the kind of good deeds that one another, uh, what, that each other was was doing for his people, and they would almost seek to compete in their their generosity and their almsgiving. Um, so to 
just allude to a few um, things that uh, King Henry of England did, and it was just typical at this time for a medieval king, was that he would he would minister to the poor, the sick and the leprous, and he would customarily give um, and feed thousands of poor every single week at his palace in London, very much inspired by the Franciscan ideal. So in um, in 15, uh, sorry, in 1242, 50,000 poor were fed for the soul of Henry's sister, Isabella, who was Holy Roman Empress, who had died in her late 20s. In 1260, 20,000 were fed in honour of the soul of Henry's half-brother, Aymer, Bishop of Valence. Um, and in 1245, 10,000 were fed after the death of his father-in-law. So you can see here that when the king was particularly reminded of the four last things with the, the deaths of, of his loved ones, um, this really um, stirred um, these great acts of charity. And this feeding of the poor would take place on a weekly basis. Um, even when visiting the French king, King St. Louis IX, Henry did not neglect his duty to the poor. Um, he would give to the Parisians and he would um, use those occasions to venerate saints. Um, it was an important part of kingship. The poor had a role to play. Almsgiving led to spiritual reward for the king, um, but also for his kingdom in the form of peace and harmony. The greater the numbers, the greater the expense for the king, the greater the reward for God. Um, and this is made explicit in the imagery of his palace halls. And one favourite illustration was the parable of, of Lazarus. Uh, so the rich man who refused to give food from his table to the pauper Lazarus, Lazarus um, and, and then descended to hell, whereas Lazarus was lifted to the, the bosom of Abraham. That was on the, uh, in the royal palace of Westminster to remind the king of his of his his duty as a um, as a servant leader. Um, so Henry wouldn't always be present at these great feedings, um, and we don't know if he personally fed the poor and the sick as Louis the Ninth did. Um, but certainly his his patronage of the mendicant friars, his carrying out of the of uh, the Monday Thursday ceremony of foot washing, was all redolent with this idea and with this this ideal of um of of servant leadership and of um this this uh this central focus of almsgiving which as i say was right at the heart of christian kingdom and this um this the the henry's belief the christian belief that the poor represented christ and that these acts demonstrated his devotion to the body of Christ and reflected his own role as Christ's anointed on earth, um, which, of course, was was idealized within Franciscan charity. Um, so. Right at the heart of medieval life was this economy of merit, and this is very difficult for us to really imagine um, today because it was established at such um, a universal social level. But essentially everything that the medieval did was about was ideally about building up treasure in heaven. That's that's what merit is. And so whether it was going on pilgrimage, venerating relics, taking part in processions, giving to the poor, fasting, all of these actions of the Christian were within this economy of merit. When the Protestant revolution rejected the economy of grace and merit, we had the rise of the, the money economy. Um, of course, that had been, um, big, that had been, uh, uh, starting in the late Middle Ages, but it really erupted um, in the 16th century. 
with the Protestant. And so the nobility in Protestant countries, particularly in England, by rejecting the economy of grace and merit, by tearing down their chantry ch chapels, for example, um, by stealing the uh, monastic lands, by enclosing the commons, they gave themselves to this new agrarian capitalist economy and this beginning of commodification, which is the um, a, a major episode in this denigration of nobility, in the corruption of nobility. It was different in Baroque Europe, in Baroque Catholic Europe, the, the ideal, the, the noblesse oblige um, ideal continued. And um, um, one example of this that that listeners might um, consider is the um, it's a fictional example, but it's inspired by real events is um, the example of uh, Don Fabrizio, the prim prince of Lampedusa in the Italian novel, The Leopard, which was written by an Italian nobleman. And that really captures the the atmosphere of the last days of Christendom in the 19th century in Sicily, where Don Fabrizio, this um, very flawed, um, but nevertheless somewhat dutiful um, prince in Sicily, visits his, his feudal domain of Donna Fugata. And the first thing that he does when he um, arrives there is to visit the the church and to venerate the, the relics of the local saint. And then after that is to distribute arms to the the very poor people um, of of that um, of that village. And it, again, it just shows how it was just customary for this to for the for the uh, the nobility to do this. It was just expected. Um, and then final example um, in pre-revolutionary France, um, the, the last French king of the Ancien Regime before the revolution, Louis XVI, a, a pious man, um, took his duty of arms giving very seriously and often visited the poor in their homes and villages, distributing arms from his own purse. Um, for example, during the difficult winter of 1776, the king oversaw the distribution of firewood among the peasants, and he would travel incognito to hospitals, prisons and factories to gain first-hand knowledge of the conditions in which the people lived. Um, he also patronised a number of hospitals um, and uh, philanthropic institutions for the care of the poor. This association between nobility and almsgiving is still with us today um, in, in various forms. One of those is the tradition of royal maundy and maundy money, which is something that the British monarchs do to this day. And uh, within this custom, what happens is that every maundy Thursday, the British monarch distributes special Maundy money to local pensioners in after an Anglican service uh, commemorating Maundy Thursday. And this is this is a, a surviving medieval political form uh, that we have. And the, the, the late Queen was very, um, very devoted by it. And it's it's notable, actually, because it's the only occasion on which the Queen would visit others to make awards to give gifts. Um, for every other award, whether it, an honour, whether it's the you know the Order of the British Empire or knighthood, the particular individual travels to the palace to receive that that honour, that gift. But for the Maundy money, the Queen herself travels uh, would travel to um, local areas to distribute these arms. Um, these arms are, are these, um, um, these beautiful silver pennies. Um, which which are actual um, um, currency, um, legitimate currency um, that the that uh, the 
the recipient um, can keep it obviously has a great um, sort of uh, symbolic sentimental value. Um, but there's also some money that they can that, that there's actual arms. Now, I, d I don't think this is worth very much. And I think um, perhaps it, it's wonderful that this this ceremony has continued. But um, it, ideally, that that money that the um, that the poor receive would be, you know, a few hundred pounds or a thousand pounds or something to to actually show that this is a, a real dent in the, you know, in the in the annual um, expenses expenditure of the um, of the 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 palace, um, that's that's what the medieval form would be. It, it wasn't just a symbol; it was actually something which, um, as I say, was a, a little sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So, um, I as you're saying all this, I, I I'm seeing um, what caused the reaction against nobility and I, I you already mentioned the corruption of the nobility in england and in protestant countries by the nobility realizing that through this new heretical doctrine of the protestants they can then seize this property that was given to the poor and to the common good and i think of two other sort of large examples of the corruption of the nobility one is the slave trade where they the the nobles and also Catholic countries joined with the Mohammedans in their existing slave trade to start capturing people and forcing them to work, obviously, in the New World. Um, and the third example, I think of what I think it really begins. Um, it, it begins with the um, what is the name of that? The I think it's under Louis the Fourteenth when uh, Saint Vincent de Paul is trying to convince the the king to um be a better monarch whereas cardinal richelieu is more of a corrupt prelate and the corruption of of catholic france and so as i understand it that the, all the nobles and the, the local lords were brought to the palace in versailles to just live an opulent lifestyle and not really care for their their uh, their subjects in their local place um but and i understand that the king in france just did this to try to control the nobles more but ultimately, all these different things um, caused the, these various liberal revolutions. I think of, um, obviously, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. Also, I thought of the Haitian Revolution as well regarding slavery. Um, but the, you, it, it seems to me that there, there's an existing grievance. You know, maybe these nobles are not doing so good at nobility. Sure. But there's also a jealousy and envy where um, people are leaders like in the american revolution there's various leaders of these colonies who are jealous and envious and they want more power and so they're using this rhetoric against nobility uh like thomas Paine, to try to stir up the mob so that the mob will be also jealous and angry at the nobility and then they'll try to create this egalitarian society which ultimately ends up being that the the, the patriot leaders end up seizing more power so they can have more power based on this fantasy idea that egalitarianism is even possible or it can even exist uh and then as you say the rich and the the these leaders they can then disguise their wealth and they have no accountability yes exactly so um and you're right to point out there tim that the nobility and the the noble families were very much to blame for um the the rise of um revolutionary envy to a certain extent in that god is just and the cupidity of late medieval nobility and then of course the the highest noble family which is the royal family um and the kind of luxury that started to um flourish in the courts of the late medieval um houses i'm thinking of the house of burgundy um the, in capetian france uh philippe labelle charles the seventh i think all of these instances now of course there were um you know many pious uh uh individuals i'm i'm just drawing broad brushes here i'm talking about a spirit of luxury 
that start a tendency that entered into um, the, the royal houses and also the noble houses with the end of the Crusades, that martial energy was no longer directed um, towards this sacrificial, um, uh, holy um, action of, um, of liberating the holy places, uh, purifying the holy places. Instead, it was turned inwards and the the noble families too often were concerned about um elevating the material conditions of their particular family and the material status and it's all part of that late medieval um decline um there was something you mentioned there which i wanted to touch on let's just see um yes yeah, so um, nevertheless, the, the norm and the expectation was for noble families in any particular local area to give alms, to tithe, to sponsor and patron local charitable institutions and do discrete things like pay for the weddings of or pay the dowries of their uh, of their vassals. Um, as you say, the opportunities, the commercial opportunities of um, the age of discovery and the uh, opening of new markets abroad uh, were temptations uh, for this for this growing cupidity. Um, I think that a kind of humility is needed uh, when we when we look back at this um, this time, and I think we should first of all as always, start with first principles, which is that society is an agglomeration of families, even clans, you might say. Um, it's not the atomized individuals who are serially numbered with their social security number. Right. Each vote. Um, and so if society is families, the ascendancy of one family, of one, sorry, of one individual through the life of virtue is beautiful, of course, but it's it's not enough. Christianity is is the ascendancy of families as well, because man is a social animal. You can't baptize yourself. Um, and families would ascend through many generations and they would sometimes, um, the culmination of that would be that they were ennobled. And I'll give some historic examples in the and thanks to to uh, my friend um, Capellius Seaman uh, for for furnishing me with some of these examples. Um, in the University of Coimbra, the medieval University of Portugal, after three generations of of um, professorship within one family, um, that professor after three generations would be um, awarded a title of lower nobility because what ennobles is service and so here you see the conformity of that transcendental nobility that transcendental of being with human society uh, similarly the sede gestatoria of the popes um, the the very highest honor for the black nobility what became the black nobility the patriciate of rome the old no uh, roman families the very highest honor for a nobleman of that family was to was to serve the um the pontifex maximus by carrying him on your shoulder which was what slaves would do in ancient rome but it's that reminder that true nobility is service and so what i want to really emphasize is that nobility is not just of the past it's for today and it's for the future and it's putting, as you say, admiration as opposed to envy right at the heart of our social life. I mean, it might seem a bit trite, but just ask yourself, what would be the fruits for um, for the church if a very high profile celebrity converted and truly converted? What would be the fruits if Brad Pitt converted, for example? How many people would convert to Catholicism, if he became a traditional Catholic, fully, integrally orthodox uh, and vocal in his 
uh, in his beliefs. The, the apostolic fruit uh, would be uh, pretty plentiful. And those conversions wouldn't be insincere either. It's just that people would give themselves permission to consider uh, Christian uh, revelation as credible because they have this admiration for this uh, member of the elite within contemporary Western society and they would want to follow in his path. And that's what happened when the Roman Empire was converted and there were many com uh, there were many converts among the Roman patriciate families who saw in Christianity, quite rightly, the fulfillment of the old Roman pagan virtues um, that, for example, Cicero wrote about um, in the um, Aeneid. And they also had the the conversion of the uh, of many of the slave class of Romans to poles of society that Roman society was converted from from either end. So we have the unitary principle. We have to understand that the whole of society is one. Uh, the nation as one has a single guardian angel. So this is a, this is a reality, and we've talked before about um, about the um, the primordial light of of nations. Um, so just as the revolution is one, the nation is one, it's one social fabric. And what's happened in the modern age is that that social fabric has become frayed, it's become threadbare, and we need strong yarn within that social fabric. And aristocracy is needed for that, that, that fabric to reconstitute. Um, and almsgiving is a great way for... Um, for the nobleman particularly to live a life of virtue which we all follow we all have a calling to nobility in an analogous way now uh theo would you say that um someone who has wealth and power uh or even just virtue or knowledge uh of the christian faith would you say that they have become nobility in, in these senses and then they have a corresponding obligation? Yes, certainly. They should seek to um, to fulfill and ennoble their social station, which is to possess this wealth with, with the crown of virtue. And um, as our Lord says to the rich young man, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Okay, so that's our, that's, that's the idea of merit, the treasure we have earned in heaven. And almsgiving undoes the evil effect of money, because it is the means by which we order to charity, that which by its very nature, so, so money by its very nature, hinders the perfection of charity. Almsgiving, you might say, redeems money. And and um, through the giving of almsgiving in a relational context, cultivates this paternal relation of the the higher to the lower. I have a quote from Saint Thomas Aquinas. He wrote, um, "Riches, once they are possessed, are certainly in themselves of a nature." to hinder the perfection of charity, especially by enticing and distracting the mind. I'm a summa theologica. So the rich used to be made aware of the real spiritual dangers of riches and the reality of that. One of the things that priests really should be doing, and one of the things they've largely shied away from doing today, is by um, exhorting the rich uh, to the fact that their their riches are a great spiritual danger and they could be leading them to hell. And instead, they should see the poor as as children, and they should they should be giving to them uh, in alms to the point that it it is as I say giving from the substance, not just the, the excess. And we don't see so much of that in in preaching today, um, of course almsgiving should be discreet uh, and shouldn't be public. So it's not not to say that there aren't uh, many good, rich Catholics out there who are, who are doing good charitable works, but I'm not seeing so much um, preaching where, where priests are exhorting the rich to do this more. 
And I, I just want to comment from the perspective of these United States. There's such a, a pervasive false idea, an error, I would even claim a heresy of this this false idea of money that, you know, just because you have St. Thomas in, in the um, the catechism, the small catechism on almsgiving that I, that I will link below, he mentions how, yes, the rich man owns his wealth. He possesses it. It is his property, but he does not possess it sort of absolutely because he does have an obligation to use that wealth in a good way. Um, I think of, uh, I just thought of James chapter five, go to now rich men, weep and howl in your miseries, which shall come upon you. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which by fraud has been kept back by you crieth and the cry of them hath entered into the ears of the Lord. Sabaoth. So we have the, one of the four sins that cried to heaven for vengeance is this oppression of the poor by the rich. Um, now, Theo, what would you say to many? Um, there are Catholics in in among these United States who would claim that we are basically by saying the things we're saying here, Theo, we are promoting Marxism. Basically, we're promoting the abolition of private poverty or things like that. How, how would you answer that type of a critique from an American Catholic? Well, I think I would quote um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth in Rerum Novarum, where he's just re-articulating re -articulating and following some of those quotes from Holy Scripture that you've given there when he says that property is to be owned privately, yes, but it is to be managed as if it were in common, as if it were held in common. The English nobility violated that obligation when they enclosed the commons, which was not state-owned property and was not privately owned pop property. It was this third category, which just completely disappeared, which is um, communal property um, by which the poor could, um, could, uh, could benefit and could better their condition. And so I hope that through this exposition that I've offered, um, there's been no hint of egalitarianism uh, or indeed Marxism uh, in, in what I've said. Um, I very much talked about the, the metaphysical principle of uh, and transcendent, uh, the transcendental, I believe, of nobility. And that the proportionality, the, the commensurate proportionality is that those to whom much is given, much will be expected. And so, um, Catholics should be aware in of this theological sense that true nobility is Christian perfection and um, charity is what unites us in God. And so um, I, I want to really heighten uh, to help people's sense of, of, of hierarchy and of um, uh, social distinction to be to be heightened um, and then with that the noblesse oblige to be heightened as well uh, what we have is both worlds in a certain sense in the, in the modern era in which people espouse um, this egalitarianism this Marxism and this envy where they simultaneously adulate the modern celebrity the modern billionaire and yet they have this burning envy towards them as well, their lifestyle and, and, and you know, their, uh, their um, luxuries that they um, display um, uh, in, an, in a uh, vulgar manner on social media, for example. Um, so they have the, the envy while also um, uh, uh, emulating this bad example. Um, and then, and then, um, yeah, on the other hand, espousing this this egalitarianism. Um, so, so in both cases, it's it's disordered, and um, we need to recognise the the reality of of human distinction, um, and and um, remember that the that true nobility is to be a baptised son of God. Yes. I, I recall St. Thomas's 
definition of humility is is to conform oneself with the truth and if you're living in this fantasy world of called egalitarianism you're not living according to the truth you're pridefully adhering to some something that doesn't really exist i think that the catholics in in the united states of america we're going on 10 generations really of this egalitarian fantasy world since 1776 and i think that catholics here are, are so conditioned to have a liberal state of mind that any type of talk like we're talking just sort of oh that must be marxism you know they, they can't even co comprehend this concept of nobility and hierarchy and, and all these things that we're talking about um I, so Theo, i know we have about uh, five or ten more minutes what what do you want to close on uh, in our conversation here well, since you've mentioned their um, American history, I think it's it's worth just maybe pointing out to our listeners um, some further reading and some some further meditations. I've emphasized before in an article on one Peter five that Americans shouldn't necessarily see their polity as utterly estranged from the Catholic city, from the history of Christendom. Yes, it's true that the, the American polity as constituted has never been formally Catholic. And of course, that's what lay Catholics should be striving to achieve in their, um, in their uh, apostolic life, in their, in their apostolate. Um, but nevertheless, territories and in fact, states, um, although not constituted as states per se, but territories within the United States were part of Christendom. Um, that's something that I've I, I've, I've tried to uh, draw attention to. And um, our fellow uh, con fellow contributing editor, Charles Coulomb, has obviously written at length about how California, Texas, Louisiana, um, these Florida, these were all territories within Christendom. So Americans shouldn't see themselves as other than this history. Um, and they should look to those great Catholic families, those distinguished Catholic families that were the, the colonial pioneers um, in, in those territories. I'm thinking, for example, of the, the, uh, the Irish families of Texas, who I don't know if you, if you know much about the, the history of these families, uh, Tim, um no i don't i don't know much about the except for the um the battalion of san patricos that are all i know those are the only texan texan irishmen i know please well that, that's exactly yeah that's exactly the 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 people that i'm referring to actually. oh okay great as you as you've just um noted there they were um dwelling in texas when it was part of mexico um and that is because um mexico uh, gained independence. Um, they had this frontier in the north, and um, they had a problem with um, Anglo-Protestant settlers um, encroaching um, into uh, Catholic Texas, um, Hispanic Texas. And so um, they encouraged the settlement of, they, they thought, okay, who can we, who can we get there who is, who is Catholic um who doesn't like the english and who is good at fighting and there was a people that ticked all those three boxes who were the irish yeah, and so they encouraged irish settlement along that frontier in texas um uh to to kind of stem this this anglo-protestant um um emigration okay eventually the republic of texas does become independent and and join the united states but those the descendants of those irish catholic families are still very prominent within the texan elite today and a number of them are are faithful and uh they they form um important part of texan high society and so it's just an example there of of um the kind of prominent distinguished catholic families that could have a real impact um it will also in Catholic missions in California. Um, sadly, there's been many examples of unfaithful Catholic families. I would say, for example, the Carols, 
um, some of them, yes. uh, doing their, uh, well, first of all, um, enforcing a, a, a secular liberal constitution, um, but also uh, sponsoring anachronisms and things in the 18th century, Charles Carroll. Um, so those families have uh, a higher obligation. And there are examples I've got here from writing by John Randolph of Roanoke, so one of the very old Virginia gentry families who wrote about the importance of liberty over equality and, and wrote very well about the importance of distinction and hierarchy within society. So if you look for it, particularly with the Southern tradition, there is um, the tradition of talking about American aristocracy. It might not be formalized in, in titles, families but nevertheless there is the aristotelian reality of aristocracy there and i think that americans would do well to recover it um and uh, you know that's why the is it the 17th amendment which which directly elected senators you know i i don't i don't recall actually i don't uh, don't remember which amendment that is i'm i'm not sure what it is but i think catholics should should um should uh, be working for its its repeal because yeah. um, the, that's that's a bad thing. The Senate was the aristocratic element within the Constitution, modelled on the English Constitution, um, and it would be much more fitting if senators, rather than being directly elected, were appointed by um, state legislatures from prominent noble families from that particular state. And then you get the hereditary element within the Constitution. Um, which, as we heard from um, St. Charles Borromeo at the beginning uh, of this recording, um, is uh, an important reality because um, family traditions um, is like the soil from which virtue can grow. And so the, the um, reality of, of um, family virtue going back um, will be inspirational to uh, members of that family today, and they will be able to live to a higher um, ideal. Excellent. Yeah, I, I just looked it up. Uh, yes, Seventeenth Amendment. So uh, I, I, I've just embarrassed myself in my U.S. history, but uh, yeah, Seventeenth Amendment. Excellent. Um, well, let's uh, thank you very much. The I very much appreciate your treatment here. This has been very enlightening, very valuable. Um, it gives us. First, we need to study the history and understand where we came from in terms of this nobility and then ask God to give us wisdom to then act according to this nobility, according to our state and life in our 21st century, because this is a tradition and doctrine of the church, which the church has accepted and passed down to us. And I think that this is sort of that very potent, intrinsic area where we need to reclaim something uh which is still unfortunately very controversial in in the american society so with all that let's call upon as you say the the noble the most noble creation of almighty god our lady and our, our lady as seat of wisdom so let us pray an ave maria to close this out in nomine patris et fidi et spiritu sancti amen Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.